Hello. 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 And welcome to Mobilize. Mobilize is a podcast that puts a spotlight on and is a resource for people, people, friends, communities, communities activists, activists who've decided to stand up, resist, 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 fight back, mobilize. Each day, together, together, we shine a light on the we truth. Shine a light on the we truth. focus on the things that unite us. We pull each other up. We celebrate, we celebrate our, our shared humanity. humanity. Episode 26, Stepping Up in a Time of Crisis. In 2018, Catalina Cruz became the first Dreamer elected to the New York State Legislature, and she now represents State Assembly District 39, which covers Jackson Heights, Corona, and Elmhurst, Queens. Alessandra Biaggi is the progressive New York State Senator from District 34, who helped put an end to the IDC by defeating its leader, Jeff Klein. I first interviewed each of them when they were running for office, then spoke with them again last year to hear about their experiences of working in the legislature. This spring, I interviewed each of them again to find out how the coronavirus pandemic was affecting their work and their districts and what they thought its impact would be on New York State going forward. Jackson Heights, Corona, and Elmhurst, we are a resilient community. And in spite of all the horrible things that have happened to us, the soul of our community is doing well. Mm-hmm. We've had loved ones die. We had our businesses closed. We've had people lose their job. And these are all horrific things. But when you go outside and you talk to people from six feet apart, when you look at how the community has stepped up to, to help each other, we're doing okay. Because we haven't lost that humanity, that love. Jackson Heights, Corona, and Elmhurst have been historically immigrant communities. About 60% of the people who live here are born in another country. About 40% have non-permanent or no status, meaning they're undocumented, asylum, DACA, et cetera, et cetera, which means that 40% generally don't qualify for any of the social safety net or bailout money that's coming from the federal, state, or city. And so uh, we have a community that already was living in the fringes of poverty, faced with homelessness. Many were dependent on charity or, you know, for the ones that did qualify, like food stamps, et cetera. And what we saw was a community that was already forced to live two, three families in a one bedroom because of income. And, you know, sometimes because of our culture where we wanted to live with grandma, grandpa, et cetera. And so how do you self-isolate when you have possible symptoms in a situation like that? How do you stop going to work when you are working these daily or hourly jobs where if you don't work, you don't pay rent, you don't survive. And Elmhurst Hospital, which by now everybody is familiar with as making front page news when in a 24-hour period we had 30 deaths. This hospital was already helping people that nobody else was willing or able to help. And so we are now seeing the repercussions of having ignore the needs of our community members for so long. 
And I say we, because even though I have been fighting for our community for a very long time, it's been those in power, those in elected office, who for decades have put patches on the problem and not really dug into the solution. Basically, everything that is happening in this crisis is happening in District 34. This district, because it's gerrymandered, crisscrosses. So you go from Riverdale to then the East Bronx, then to the South Bronx. Uh, It has Rikers Island, Hart Island. The bodies who are not claimed are being buried at Hart Island. And the crisis with regard to the spread inside of jails started at Rikers. The South Bronx has some of the highest rates of obesity, hypertension, asthma. These are the comorbidities that are making people very sick and making them um, more likely to die because of the systems of inequality that were created years and years ago. So this whole entire underbelly of this issue, right, in the most vulnerable places, One of the things that kind of highlights how disparate uh, this disease is treating communities, the town of Pelham and the village of Pelham in Westchester County have a lot of small businesses. And in order to keep them open, a lot of different groups, the Junior League and the Civics Association, Pelham together, have come together to raise money. They've raised over $40,000. They can spend it in the small businesses to buy food so that these places can stay open, and then they can deliver the food to the frontline workers at the different hospitals. Now, look at places like the South Bronx. Basically, simply to fight for a testing site was like one of the most challenging things that we had to deal with. And people have asked me to help them with things that I never in my wildest dreams would have imagined. Constituents calling about helping them to call the morgue because the morgue can't find their loved one's deceased body or the funeral homes in the Bronx being so overrun that they don't know where to call, Um, making sure there's more PPE to the several hospitals in District 34. One of the things that we have seen the most is just the incredible need for food across the borough, but especially in the South and the Southeast Bronx. I have never seen anything like this in my life. Really, I haven't. And it has really I think, pushed us to do things we wouldn't ordinarily do, calling a Whole Foods, calling and getting in touch with Instacart in California to say, here are the food pantries in District 34. It's really reshuffled the way that reality looks right now. It's pushed all of us who are able to help to a limit, which is amazing, but also disturbing. Why should private residents be raising money for food? That's crazy. Why do we need to have private businesses donating food? Like, these are the gaps in our government that should never have existed. I grew up undocumented. Knowing that these are the folks who wouldn't qualify for anything, I realized, what is the basic thing they're going to need? And I knew it was food. On approximately March 16th, I was headed up to Albany for session. And it canceled and we headed back. And on March 17th, we turned our office into a food pantry. We partnered with World Central Kitchen, which is the nonprofit started by Jose Andres. And we're extremely thankful for his partnership. And we had a line that was maybe half a block long, nothing crazy. And every day that line has grown. And we grew from 300 meals out of my office and another 500 or so out of an, an organization called La Jornada, which operates right outside of my district into an operation where we are giving about 2,000 to 2,200 meals per day. My lines are often six or seven blocks long, and I still at times have to turn people away because I've run out of food. But every day I still see some of the same people. There are no other places these folks can go. Because these are the folks that, when I say how many meals you need, they will tell me, oh, I just need three of my children. 
and I say, how many people are at home? Oh, five. Then I'll give you five. And it's such a honest and, and understanding behavior of people who know need and know hunger mm-hmm. that I see it every day. I have one particular day where we started at 1230 and I ran out of food by 130 and I sat there and I started crying and someone came to the door and was knocking and I thought they were asking for food. And he said, no, I'm your neighbor from across the street and I have several pallet vegetables and dried food that I'd love to gift you. Because of him, I got to feed another 20 people that came after that. It was just an amazing show of love because he saw the lines that I had every day. Mm-hmm. I've had people get to the end of the line and I say, these are my last five. And then the person behind them will say, oh, I just needed one. The person that got five will turn around and give him that one meal and say, don't worry. I had this one woman who comes every day after her child with special needs gets his uh, therapy via video now to collect her meals. One day she got here and there was no food and she started to cry because she said, I have to give him his therapy. I need to make sure he's okay. And I worked for 10 years in this country and I paid my taxes. And because I have no papers, I don't qualify for anything. So from that day on, I just put her food aside. I can't leave her and her kid hungry. And we also signed her up so she could get food stamps through her child because he is a United States citizen and has that right. I now have these two guys who connected with me via Instagram. I didn't even know they were undocumented. They're like, look, we have no papers. We can't collect unemployment, but we want to help. We have a car. Do you need any deliveries made? And we often make deliveries to emergency cases. If I have a senior who has not been signed up for food delivery at home, we'll help them connect and we'll do the emergency meal deliveries until their services kick in. And so we send him with about five to seven, sometimes 10 deliveries per day. He comes every day. I tried to give him gas money. He wouldn't take it. It's the people who need it the most who have stepped up. We started collecting baby products because we saw the need. And the teachers in the neighborhood, some of them live in the neighborhood, many live elsewhere, have showed up to my office with boxes of diapers. I had a group of teachers showed up with two cars the other day full of baby formula and diapers. And it's a fantastic thing. I will tell you, it probably won't meet the need, but I've had so many people just show up for us. Mm -hmm. And so I have story after story after story just like these. There are still thousands of inmates at Rikers Island. It's a breeding place for COVID-19 to spread. There's a difference between jails and prisons, right? A jail is a place where someone is held pretrial. A prison is a place where someone has been sentenced um, and is serving their time. There's one small exception in Rikers Island, which is that individuals who are serving a one-year sentence for a misdemeanor charge will be at Rikers Island. There's really no way to social distance in a jail. So what we have seen now, hundreds of inmates testing positive. We saw the first inmate at Rikers Island die, and he was there because of a technical parole violation. And we could talk about criminal justice reform all day, right? I voted no to repeal the bail reform that we did last year because I believe we actually were going in the right direction. What we had seen was that 90% of our jail population had been reduced. And now we have individuals in jail who are part of a vulnerable population, right? Number one, they are generally low income. They generally come from parts of New York City that have been underinvested in, that have been redlined. What does that mean? It means that they don't have access to healthcare, healthy food, or even fresh air. And so they have these 
comorbidities that are the reason why people are dying from COVID-19. It's why I wrote a letter to um, the governor and to the mayor, basically listing out this four or five point plan of like who should be released and who shouldn't be, and to please get these individuals out of the jail immediately. Again, these are individuals, majority of whom have not been charged. And by the way, even if they have been charged, they should still be treated with dignity and respect, still have the ability to have access to testing if they need it, have access to doctors, have access to the healthcare system that will allow them to be safe. Going to jail or to, quote unquote, serve your sentence should not be a death sentence. And yet look at where we are. We've now seen multiple people pass away. We have uh, corrections officers also who have contracted COVID-19 and become incredibly ill. So, you know, Rikers Island is this hotbed. And on the one hand, I'm grateful that I represent it because I can use my voice to highlight what needs to happen and can really fight very hard for it. On the other hand, it's again, it's this disturbing situation that is just glaring now because we had (laughs) the inmates at Rikers Island digging the graves at Hart Island. Not one person communicated to my office that that was happening. The only reason I knew it was happening was because of a drone. They've now transitioned from the inmates at Rikers to contracted labor. But it's just such an indictment of our society. One thing um, that my office has been prioritizing is the aggregation and then the dissemination of information. Every day, there's calls with the governor's office and the mayor's office and all these different entities. And then the information we get, we put into an email every single night. There's so much information out there and people can get confused who just haven't interacted with government before. We want to make sure that they have the tools to do that and know that we're here because the 1% of people will know, oh, let me call my state senator. I mean, I feel like the federal government is sitting on its hands. They have done it from the beginning of this crisis when they found out and put every single American in danger. The most important thing during a crisis of this proportion that affects all 50 states is to have one command center where people can say, here's the guidance, here's the protocol, because you need one voice. And even if the governor of Iowa is not the governor of of New York, they're speaking the same process. And the first order of business should have been to basically shore up supplies and direct industrial production to produce PPE on a grand scale, right? Instead, what did we see? We saw New York compete with Oregon. We're seeing FEMA compete with New York for masks. I mean, in what planet does the federal government compete with the states for emergency protective equipment? If I look back in my lifetime, I remember 9-11, we looked to the president. During Hurricane Sandy, we looked to the president, right? But unfortunately, looking to the president, I believe right now is dangerous because information that's coming out of the White House is not to be trusted. And the way we're seeing it be dangerous now is this urgency on behalf of the president to open the United States of America again. But a lot of people can die if we open up the economy too soon. This starvation for leadership is so palpable for many people that the bar is very low. And then you look to your state governors, right? Although some have done a terrible job, i.e. Florida. On the one hand, I feel very lucky to live in New York because the governor has been very forceful. On the other hand, probably most people know that I have been a very longtime critic of him. Let's take a look behind the scenes. Like, let me pull the curtain for one second. At the same time that this crisis has been going on, we passed a state budget. One of the pieces of the state budget was billions of dollars of cuts to Medicaid. Where would those cuts hurt the most? In the Bronx. Because in the Bronx, there's public safety net hospitals that majority of their patients are Medicaid and Medicare recipients. 
to say that we're going to be cutting tens of millions of dollars per hospital is what it rounds out to during a pandemic is not only irresponsible, it shows a lack of compassion that underscores exactly why I have been at odds with this executive so many times. There are still three branches of government, and we need to be able to convene as a legislative body. Every single day that this pandemic is presenting new challenges, there is a reciprocal need to be addressed, such as canceling rent, providing health care to our essential airport workers, absentee ballots. We've seen these things happen through executive order, which means that once that governor leaves office, that executive order no longer stands. It's not law, so you have to codify those types of things. Um, however, if you've been watching the news, I'm sure you saw the governor effectively say that the legislative session is over, which to me, that's fascinating because I thought that we had three branches of government. Perhaps I hallucinated and dreamed about democracy, but you know, here we are again. And so all of the things that I really dislike about Albany and just politics generally have risen to the surface in a way that allows us to speak about them, which is good. At the same time, it's not good because I don't want to be speaking about the bad things about Albany. I want to be doing the work that I was sent there to do. Look, hindsight is twenty twenty. However, there are certain basic things that our city, our state, and our federal government have failed to do in the way that it was needed. I think schools should have closed much, much sooner. I think we should have had a better rollout for how we were going to have our children learn from home. The fact that we didn't fully close our state until much later is very problematic. I am very grateful that the mayor proposed a $20 million program to provide undocumented folks with resources, something the federal government failed to do. It, it took our tax money, but when it came time to helping our families, they turned their back on us. I think at the state level, the governor's response has been good. I wish we would have gone about our state budget differently and focused on simply the money we didn't have and we needed so that we could have done things like tax the rich not focused on things like rollback of bail reform. That's a conversation that if the governor and the Senate wanted to have, we could have had it at another time, not in the middle of a pandemic. And I am hoping that as we move forward, do we really want to look at what moving forward with equity, not equality, with equity looks like? I looked at the list in both task forces. There's the mayor one and there's the governor's one. And one of the things that struck me as interesting is that not enough members came from the epicenter of the epicenter, meaning the parts of the Bronx and my district. There's something to be said about that. I think as a community, we often get bogged down by who do we blame for things. What I want people to focus on is how do we get out of this and how do we move forward? With a full understanding that the things that were priority and important six months ago, three months ago, should not be what's important. The weekend before all of this happened that we began our big closeout, I was in my campaign office counting how many signatures we had, figuring out fundraising, all those political things. The day I turned my office into a food pantry, I stopped caring about the politics. I mean, I have to because I have to get reelected so I can continue to fight with our people. But my team has to fight with me to even do a political email or call someone to ask for money. Because if I am spending an hour doing that, I'm not spending an hour giving out food, thinking of legislation, figuring out how to help my people. And so I think as a community, we need to 
reprioritize? Is getting our hair and our nails done fantastic? Yes. But is that the main one thing that we should be worried about that week? No. Is blaming the governor, the mayor, the president going to make us feel better? Perhaps for five minutes. But is our loved one still going to be gone? Is our community's favorite restaurant still going to be closed? Yes. And so how do we harness all that pain and all that anguish into moving forward as a community and understanding that at the end of the day, sometimes all we can do is count on each other. How do we harness the power of each other? Because we can't continue to rely on people who promised us that once they got into power, they would be helping us and have not. And I say this about some of my own colleagues who promised the world to communities in need. And when the storm hit, looked for shelter for themselves. I rarely agree with the governor, but I will tell you that the day that he said, you as elected officials, and I'm paraphrasing here, chose this job. Your duty is to serve. For folks to be okay with simply sending out an email once in a while and closing their offices. I have people from other communities, upstate, downstate, calling my office because we're one of the only ones. There's a few who have phone lines open. We are learning who is in this for the people and who is in this for their own ego and the power. And I was up to the people to vote them out because tons of those claim to have been progressives and forgot the part of being progressive is being out there with the people. I'm not saying literally out there because I don't want people to get sick. My decision to physically be out there is my decision. But I have also seen tons of colleagues who for their own health chose to shelter in place while still figuring out another way to help the community. There is a way to do it. This moment is such a portal of transformation. And if we don't go through to the other side of it and honestly express that the world is a different world than when we first started dealing with this crisis, then not only are we lying to ourselves, but we're lying to the possibility of making the world a better place, a more fair and just place. Because every single person who is part of that vulnerable population, whether it's because of income, whether it's because of race, whether it's because of zip code, whether it's because of socioeconomic status, has felt this crisis in ways I cannot even begin to imagine. And if we do not protect them, then God help us because we do not have any type of leg to stand on after this is done. Every single crisis, every single failure, every single point of suffering that humans experience is always an opportunity to transform something for the better. This crisis happens to affect the entire planet, which means that in this rare moment, we are part of being able to create a new world, a world that is actually fair, a world that is actually just, a world where the most vulnerable are protected in the most fierce way. And so... I am committed to coming out of this, making sure that as many people as possible who have lost hope are reminded that they are part of weaving the new thread that will create this world for us that we have been fighting for for so long, that people before I was even born were fighting for. And so this human experience connects us in a way that will not be given to us as an opportunity. Again, at least I hope not again in my lifetime. So we ought to use it and not waste it to make sure that by the time that we leave this planet, that this world is actually an exponentially better place than where we found it. 